Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here today. My name is Angus, if I've not met you before. I'm the site pastor here at St. Oswald's and I'm going to be opening up... God's Word to us this morning. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of a heads up, um, next week at church we begin a nine-week teaching series in the book of Acts, which is the uh, extension of the gospel after Jesus has been raised from the dead and ascends to uh, the heavenly throne. And then the question is, what happens next? And uh, if you were with us at the very beginning of the plant here at St. Oswald's, before we actually even publicly launched the church, we looked at uh, some of the opening of Acts. We did that independently of the rest of CCIW just because we were getting ourselves ready to go. But we've grown a lot since then, and as a whole, Christchurch in the West has, uh, is going to be um, studying the book of Acts, and so we're going to be uh, entering the book of Acts as well. I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a great series, looking at what the Holy Spirit does as He empowers God's people for mission. But today, we've got a little one-off, a topical uh, message and focus as we have a think about war and peace. And that's a little unusual, and yet I think there's something worthwhile in doing it. It's Anzac Day on Tuesday, you might know, and that's the moment where our nation stops to remember the sacrifice of Australian and New Zealander service men and women who have made uh, a sacrifice of their lives in war. And at commemoration services, we will be urged to keep remembering. We'll say, lest we forget. I've always had a bit of an interest in war history. And uh, as a year 10 student, I did something a little bit nerdy. Uh, I went on a World War I battlefields school tour of Europe. Uh, it was quite a moving experience, actually, and um, uh, there was a few different moments of that that were moving. One of them was standing at the Menon Gate in Ypres in Belgium, listening to the last post be played as the sun set, a daily ritual to remember those who fell on the battlefields of Belgium, or walking through the primary school in Villers-Bretonne in France where the words, do not forget Australia, are displayed in large letters at one end of the playground as a reminder of the decisive role that Australian soldiers played in protecting that town and defeating the German army's advance in 1918. But probably the most moving of the experiences that I had while I was on that tour was the experience of standing in the commemorative graves that often had thousands and tens of thousands of crosses or stone plinths that were marking out those who had died in war, some of them crosses and stone monuments marking the soldiers who never returned home from war and whose bodies were never found. 
And that was the moment for me where it hit me in a way it hadn't before. War is a horror. There's nothing glorious about it. Fast forward to the present. Over the past 12 months, according to the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, get your head around that, there have been more than 150,000 fatalities internationally due to war, 45,000 of which are the result of the war in Ukraine, but most of the rest have come from civil war or terrorist attacks in countries such as Myanmar, Burkina Faso, Nigeria, Syria, Somalia, and Ethiopia. Just over the last week, Sudan has been plunged into civil war. War is an horrific thing. But it's also an incessant thing. Author Chris Hodges, Hedges, sorry, in his 2013 book, What Every Person Needs to Know About War, says that over the last 3,400 years of human history, humans have been entirely at peace for only 268 of them, a measly 8%. Some people uh, debate his methodology, but the only thing they do with the stat is take that number down, less than 268 years. People will die today, maybe while we sit here in church in armed conflict, human beings created in the image of God like you and me. And so as we reflect on Anzac Day, But also as we take stock of the terrible impact of war, we're asking the question, what is a Christian response to war? How do we make sense of it as Christians and what should be our attitude towards it? And just to give you a heads up, this sermon's going to be a little different than normal. We're not going to spend time in any one particular passage, but we're going to jump around a bit to get a sense of what the Bible says. We only have 25 minutes. We can't say everything, and I'm also aware that it's school holidays, which means that some of our kids are in the church with us, and so I'm being sensitive with my language. But if we're going to answer this question about war Christianly, then the place that we need to start is with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our first point this morning is God, the peacemaker, and the gospel of peace. Peace is one of the great Uh, themes of the Bible. In particular, it's one of the great themes of the gospel. When the angels show up in the gospel of Luke to tell some shepherds that the Savior has been born, they proclaim peace to those on whom God's favor rests. And when Jesus heals people, he often tells them, go in peace. When he's resurrected from the dead on the third day, he appears to his disciples and he says to them, Peace be with you. Across the New Testament letters in the Bible, there's only one or two that don't begin or have at some point in them a declaration of God's peace to those to whom the letter is written. And in the book of Hebrews, God is called the God of peace. Elsewhere, the gospel is called the gospel of peace. The Apostle Paul, he sums up what, what the gospel accomplishes when he says in Colossians 1.20, don't have this one on the screen, we'll come to Ephesians 2 in just a moment, 
that God has made peace with humanity through the blood of Jesus at the cross. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has reconciled us to himself, to God the Father. And that peace that has been established between God and humanity also establishes peace between people. And so Ephesians chapter 2 says, For he is our peace. In his flesh, that's Jesus, he has made both groups, that's Jews and non-Jews, the two kinds of people that Jews thought of in the world, one, and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility that was between us. See, the basic storyline of the Bible is that we were never meant to be at war. Sin is the breakdown of the original Eden peace. It breaks our peace down with God, and so it breaks down our peace with each other. In Genesis chapter 4, right after sin enters the world, in chapter 3, it speaks of Cain murdering his brother Abel out of jealousy. And so conflict and deadly force has been with us since the advent of sin in God's world. Much later in Israel's history, if you fast forward a thousand plus years, the prophets spoke of a time when God would bring about the end of conflict and the dawn of everlasting peace. Isaiah chapter 2, he speaks of this day and he talks specifically about it as a day when there would be no more war. We read this passage, but at the end of the passage, the prophet Isaiah says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you get the image? Isaiah is saying that a day is coming where weapons of war are so redundant that they're going to be taken by blacksmiths and they're going to be beaten into agricultural tools. They won't be needed for war anymore. What they'll be needed for is for the harvest, for the fruitfulness of God's world. And war will be such a distant memory that nations won't even train their young men and women for war anymore. That's the future that God intends. That's where creation is headed. Reminds me a little bit of this sculpture in the British Museum. Uh, I think we've got a picture of it that will come on up here called the Tree of Life. It's a sculpture that is made entirely out of AK-47s, pistols and grenade launchers from Mozambique's 15-year civil war from 1977 to 1992. It's part of a project of a number of artists working to take the old weapons of war and to transform them from symbols of death into symbols of life. Isaiah, the prophet, he also speaks about one who will be the prince of peace, the king of peace, the one who will rule God's kingdom of peace. And in that kingdom, warfare will be totally unnecessary. And 
what Jesus, the Prince of Peace, does when he arrives on the scene is he brings peace with God. And so Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Important to realize that Jesus doesn't just sue for peace. He doesn't make a treaty of peace with his enemies where they get to keep their territory and he gets to keep his. No, he establishes peace by crushing his enemies. It's just that the kind of enemies that he crushes are not the enemies that we normally think of. They're the enemies of death and sin. Jesus brings victorious peace, a peace that is brought by justice, the justice of the cross. And this peace that Jesus brings means that everything is changed. That's why in the opening words of the Sermon in the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, perhaps the most profound piece of ethical teaching in all of human history, Jesus tells those who want to follow him, who want to be part of this kingdom, part of this new life that God is bringing, that they're to pursue humility, meekness, and peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says. And he doesn't mean those who bring peace by crushing their enemies like the Roman Empire, but those who are willing to suffer for the sake of peace. He speaks about accepting violence and not repaying it or dealing it out. He tells his followers to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. And the point is that Jesus' followers are supposed to be an outpost of peace, representing the kingdom of peace to which they belong. And so if that's the biblical story, if that's where it's all headed, if that's what Jesus is on about and what he calls his people to be, then what should we do when it comes to war? We point to a time for war. See, the problem is that peace has been won by Jesus, but it's not been fully realized. We still live in a war-torn world. We live in the world between the Resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. We wait for the day, as Psalm 85 poetically puts it, when justice and peace will embrace. And so over the centuries of the church, Christians have had to try and work out what it might look like to think about war, including those moments where Christians have been the governing authorities of countries. And they've come to two basic positions when it comes to war, and we're going to just like give you a little bit of detail about them. One's called pacifism, and the other has been come to be known as just war theory. A Christian pacifist, to look at that one first, say that war is always wrong, and nonviolent resistance is the only legitimate response to injustice. And this means, in principle, being opposed to all wars, or at least at the very least, being opposed to Christian involvement in war. And you can see how the case can be made for this. If Jesus is on about peace and if his people are not to resist evildoers but to love their enemies, and if Jesus never explicitly condones war, which he doesn't, then there's never a justification for war from a Christian 
point of view. And as a side point, there is also evidence, particularly in the case of civil conflict, that over the last century, non-violent resistance has been more effective than armed revolution in overthrowing oppressive regimes. If you want to follow that up and read about that, there's a book by Harvard University professor Erica Chenoweth called Why Civil Resistance Works, and it's a pretty interesting read. And if you look at a passage, oops, sorry, like Romans chapter 12, you get a pretty good case for Christian pacifism. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves. Live peaceably with all. Do not repay evil for evil. It it all sounds pretty pacifist, right? And there is, I think, a defensible case that can be made for pacifism. But I think one of the things that this position struggles with is the difference between individual and communal ethics and the ethics of government. So I think it's pretty clear that we, as Christians, should practice non-violence in our own lives, but that the task given to those who rule is of a different kind. And that's what we find in the very next chapter of Romans, chapter 13, just after Paul has talked about living at peace in Romans chapter 12, he then says, the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. It is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. And what Paul's saying is that governments exist to accomplish God's purposes. God's purposes for government, they don't do it perfectly. In fact, they always do it imperfectly, and there are governments that do it better or worse. But nonetheless, God has put governments in place to wield the sword, to execute justice, however proximate that justice really is compared to God's. And if this is the case, then Christians must be committed to non-violence in their personal lives, But governments and rulers might rightly use the sword for limited purposes, for the sake of justice, which in tragic circumstances may include war. And that brings us to just war. See, there's another tradition in Christian thought that has noted the distinction between uh, this public and private, the, the role of magistrates and governors and the role of individual Christians and Christian communities. And they've also noticed that Jesus and John the Baptist interacted with soldiers in their ministry and they didn't tell them that their roles were necessarily prohibited. Luke records this moment where some soldiers come to him and John has been proclaiming the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God. And so Luke writes and he says this, he says, soldiers also asked him, that's John, and we, what should we do? 
And John says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. He doesn't tell them to stop soldiering, but rather to pursue justice in the way they treat people. And similarly, some of Jesus' early followers, like the centurion Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, they were soldiers. And so the argument goes that being a Christian doesn't prevent you from serving in the military. And there may be times when nations and kingdoms rightly go to war. But, and it's a big but, the circumstances and the extent to which war is justified will be very limited. Hence, just war. And that also doesn't make war good. And it certainly doesn't make war glorious. The ethicist Oliver O'Donovan says that for the Christian, fighting is a duty that can only be done with a shudder. Fighting is a duty that can only be done with a shudder. It's a terrible duty, not something that we should ever desire, even if in some tragic circumstances it becomes a reality. And St. Augustine, one of the first Christians to develop the theory of just war, he wrote, The wise man, they say, will fight just wars. And Augustine replies, more likely he will break his heart over the need for just wars if he remembers he is a man. In another place, Augustine goes on and he writes, peace should be the object of your desire. He's writing to Boniface, and he's writing about what it looks like for a Christian magistrate, Christian governor or ruler to deal wisely with the sword and with the authority that has been entrusted to them. He says, peace should be the object of your desire. Therefore, even in waging war, cherish the spirit of a peacemaker, that by conquering those whom you attack, you may lead them back to the advantages of peace. His point is that for the Christian, the goal of all warfare must be justice and peace including for the enemy, including for the people that you're fighting against. The governing authorities can't whip out the sword whenever they want. And wars to expand territory or to gain control of precious natural resources or to promote the glory and legacy of a ruler or even for retribution, there's no place for these within a Christian philosophy of just war. The authorities are God's servants. And therefore, their goal must be peace for all parties, not just for those whom they represent. And in trying to work out then what makes a war a just war, uh, Christian theories develop eight criteria that must be satisfied. And this is a little unusual, a little technical, uh, but I'm going to run through them with you just as a hopefully helpful, a little bit of understanding. Number one, is the cause just? The only cause is to stop an unjust ruler or to defend against violent aggression. Number two, is the intention to restore justice between friend or foe? Some wars do irreparable damage to the prospects of just relationships, but a just war is seeking to Restore justice. 
Number three is the action, a last resort. Have all other options been tried and failed? Have negotiations and economic or other sanctions been explored and implemented? Number four is the action instigated by the highest governmental authority. That's not the UN, although the UN has a pretty helpful uh, role as a guide in all of these sorts of things. But the UN doesn't govern Australians like the Australian government does. And so it's nations, states, nations who go to war and as their governments decide. Number five, are the goals limited? Any warfare, uh, the theory says, must have clearly stated outcomes. Otherwise, it just degenerates into a passion for inflicting harm or cruel retribution and vengeance. Number six, is the action proportional to the offence? The methods employed in open warfare must not exceed the initial problem. Number seven, will casualties be kept low, particularly among those who cannot or do not bear arms? Just war cannot indiscriminately kill civilians. Since it aims at peace and justice, and you don't achieve either of these two things if you attack non-military targets, and that becomes pretty difficult in an age where we've seen more and more terrorist or counterinsurgency kind of conflicts, where it's not easy to work out who are the people who bear arms. And number eight, is there a reasonable hope of success? See, there may be times where the more just thing is not to fight and to submit to an unjust oppressor because the likely outcome will be catastrophic defeat. There it is. That's the just war theory, right? Even though fighting can only be done with a shudder, even though it's a horrible reality and something that Christians should never be happy about, sometimes maybe that shudder is necessary. It's just that there will be strict conditions on it, conditions that mean that even some of the international conflicts that we've seen in the last 30 years or so, particularly in the Middle East, may fail to meet its criteria. But we're not governors, most of us. And I don't even think in our congregation we have anyone serving in active military. And so we just want to pause at the very end here and ask the question, where does that leave us? We don't have to make the decisions about procuring arms or sending weapons to Ukraine or joining a possible future conflict. And so what are the takeaways? What does it mean? for ordinary people? Well, number one, I think it means that we should never glorify war. For Christians, wars are never holy nor happy. It's a terrible duty done with a shudder. Our hope and desire is always for peace, and in that sense, we're all pacifists. Christians may disagree on when, if ever, warfare is justified, but what we all do agree about is that God is the God of peace and that peace will be the forever reality of the kingdom of God when justice and peace embrace. With that in mind, we can honour those who've died in war and things like Anzac Day, protecting our country, but we don't glorify it. We know that people who have died have made a tragic sacrifice. 
not an ultimate one, in the sense that ultimate might make it some sort of inherent good. Second, we should practice personal nonviolence. We've said this already, but it's good just to repeat it. While government is authorized in its limited ways by God to bear the sword, individual Christians are to be peacemakers in their personal lives. It's so important to get that. We don't do violence to others. We don't even return violence for violence. Jesus has taught us that the cycle of violence stops with us. And that's difficult, but true strength is not shown by brute force, but by gentleness, by a willingness to find other solutions. Third, we should keep our government, sorry, help our government do its job well. You may have strong opinions about any particular conflict and Australia's involvement, but that's ultimately the call of the elected governors, not yours and mine. And at the same time, in a democratic society like ours, we should press our rulers to give clear rationales for any military action they take. And we should be rightly embarrassed and incensed when it comes to light, as it has in our nation over the last couple of years, that certain segments of our military perpetuate what a report into possible war crimes called a self-centered warrior culture where rules were broken, stories concocted, lies told, and prisoners killed. That kind of behavior from our military, even our special forces, is never acceptable, and our government must take responsibility with the military for ensuring that armed forces pursue justice with integrity. And there's a role for us to speak and to comment and to question in that. And fourth and finally, we're to pray for our rulers. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul writes, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and for all who are in the high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice what the goal of praying for those in authority is, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. It's peace that this is aimed towards. And I think this is something that we forget to do anywhere near often enough, to pray for those who have the the difficult job of governing and ruling, to pray that they might govern in such a way that enables people, including Christians, to live in peace, free to live godly lives, and attend to that task of mission that Paul speaks of in verses 3 and 4 which is the church's way of spreading the gospel of peace concerning the king, the prince of peace, about the kingdom of never-ending peace. And so let's pray. Father, as we come and 
explore a topic that's a little unusual and a little difficult to wrap our heads around this morning. We set our hope on the reality that you are the God of peace and in Jesus our Savior, you have brought us into peace with you and into peace with one another. And while we don't see that peace everywhere yet, we long for the day when Jesus will return, when wars shall cease, when weapons shall be repurposed, where there shall be life and abundance and beauty and flourishing and goodness. And so our prayer is you might make us peacemakers, people of peace, people who pursue that in our individual relationships with one another and with those outside your community of the church. And we pray for those who govern us in this nation, including some who are followers of Jesus who serve in government. We ask that you might give to all of them wisdom, a commitment to justice and goodness. And we pray it so that that work of the gospel of peace being spread, of people coming to experience the peace that comes from you and the peace that we can have with one another, that that might continue, not just here in our context, but right throughout the world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.